Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Philip is back this week, and we're talking about the subject of experts, and in particular, biblical and theological experts, academics, scholars, those kinds of people. And like many of us, I guess I have a sort of mixed attitude to experts. On the one hand, I think we should trust expertise, Certainly, in those very few areas of life where I have a minor bit of expertise, I do like to think that it's worth something. And in fact, when a member of the mob starts blathering on about some subject or topic that I do actually know a little bit about, I tend to look down my nose at them, my patrician nose at them, and think they really should defer to someone like me who knows what they're talking about. But then again, I don't trust the experts either, because I guess I don't really trust myself I know how staggeringly wrong I can get it, even in those very few subjects that I do know a bit about. And this kind of mixed attitude towards expertise and academia is reflected in our wider society, it seems to me. When it suits us, we do insist that we should trust the science and listen to the experts, and that does seem the right thing to do in certain circumstances, except when the science doesn't say what we want it to say or when the experts turn out to be corrupt or wrong. And so in today's edition, Philip and I are exploring our attitude to one particular kind of expert, I guess you could say, the academic intellectual or scholar, particularly in those areas that most bear on our beliefs about God and the world and truth. Uh, The philosophers, the sociologists, the theologians in particular, and biblical scholars. Now, how we approach this subject connects to a theme that we've been talking about quite a lot, as it turns out, over the first few episodes of Two Ways News. The contrast between the Enlightenment modernist way of thinking that's dominated our society, really for the past 150 years at least, and the postmodern critique of that view that has arisen in recent decades. And we'll pick up our conversation at the point where I'm talking with Philip about the nature of the Enlightenment and its pursuit of truth and the Enlightenment optimism that we could arrive at the truth. They were convinced there was truth and they were convinced that they could find the truth by using their methods, rationality, empiricism being the two of the classic methodologies that by which, but then the Romantics were still, they believed there was a truth out there. It was just they came at it a, again a different way. But there was always this, but we don't come at it via God. We don't come at it via theology. We don't come from trust in God's revelation. We humans can do it without God. Yeah, quite the reverse. In fact, in many ways, the Enlightenment as it developed was the conscious rejection of an external authority for for truth. We don't find the truth because God reveals it to us. Of course, the church tells us what it is. We find it by searching for it. And with that came an arrogance of humanity. It was an arrogance of that guided by reason alone, namely my reason, I will be able to rule this world. And people who require other sources of reasoning, other sources of information like revelation, are really intellectually inferior. They are poor, benighted fools that uh, are still living in darkness. So the Enlightenment intellectual, the classic Enlightenment intellectual, I guess you could say, is cynical about the idea of there being a revealed truth, 
but not at all cynical really about their own capacity to search for that truth. No, and that's, there's a lovely phrase that I was taught many years ago. It, it's gullible cynicism. <laughs> They're totally gullible about themselves and about human rationality and, and endeavour, while at the same time being terribly cynical about others. What's the nature of that gullibility? What should they realise about themselves that they're not realising? Well, uh, first and foremost, of course, from a Christian perspective, their own sinfulness that, uh, and that how this sinfulness could misguide, affect, undermine their kind of view of the world, how much they were using the arguments of rationality and, and empiricism to actually explain, justify, rationalise their own sinfulness. Um, but it was also a gullibility about assumptions that humans can actually, without any kind of basic assumptions which might be biased or inadequate, uh, be able to evaluate the things of this world. And in many ways... Postmodernism was someone sort of blowing the whistle on that or calling time on that in some ways. It was a movement yes. that said, you've got to suspect the human and the human reason, and you've got to be cynical about the possibility of us coming to the truth at all. Yes. And the words that you are using, I mean, postmodernism really gets connected in very strongly to deconstructionism. The words that you are using and the arguments that you're using and the evidences that you bring to bear are all part of you exercising power over me, of you being able to persuade me or bully me or manipulate me or con me into accepting your view of the world, which always was a benefit for you. So the postmodern thinker comes to be distrustful of human reason and human intellectual endeavour in a way. It comes to distrust the possibility of finding the truth. It becomes cynical not only about the motives and structures and politics of the person who's doing the investigation, but therefore cynical ultimately about the possibility of ever even being such a thing as truth. Yes, once you've dispensed with truth, it's much more easy to be cynical about those who are trying to argue for truth. Because if there is no truth, then what they're arguing for is not truth. They're just arguing for their position. They're just propping themselves up. Um, and so dis dispensing with truth makes it much easier to be postmodern. The Enlightenment still wanted truth. But, of course, when you look in a faculty like theology or the Bible, then, of course, the Enlightenment people didn't want truth either. They wanted to say it's not true. So, in one sense, theology as a discipline, as an academic discipline, is the most impoverished of all. In what sense? Impoverished how? Well, neither side ultimately believes in truth in this debate between modernism and postmodernism. You've got both of them denying God's existence, both of them denying the truth that is in the Bible, both of them looking for how the Bible is a, is, is a con that has been stitched together by people to, to justify their own existence. So uh, you find the terrible problem in a faculty like theology of finding anybody who actually believes things. The professors do not profess faith. And so the result is 
when they come to assess the Bible, there's an inherent suspicion about the Bible and its truth. All Bible reading has to be done on the basis of suspicion. That's, that's the theology department of nearly every university, of nearly every academic book. We read with the mind of suspicion. Paul is writing this, if he wrote it, at the time at which he did, if it was written at that time, in order to argue for his established views or positions or orthodoxy. It had nothing to do with this is actually a man saying what he thinks is the truth, let alone this is the truth, let alone God has inspired this to be written this way. All those things by assumption can't be true. I read on the basis of suspicion all the time. This is true of all scholarship, though, right? Everybody has their commitments. Everybody has uh, their assumptions and the places that they come from. Everyone has their own personal agendas in all kinds of ways. But it's interesting that in both modernism and postmodernism, we're cynical about all kinds of things except about the scholars. Yes, Paul Johnson in the late 1980s produced a, a book called The Intellectuals in which he showed me what I hadn't really understood, the, the biography of certain key people like Rousseau or Shelley or Marx or Ibsen or, or Hemingway or Russell Sarge, you know, the great intellectuals of Western um, modernism, that when you look at their lives, their private lives, they were deeply biased, deeply biased in immorality, so that their scholarship, so-called, their intellectual argumentation, really was a cover-up for the desire for, for evil, for sin, frankly. And it's just chapter after chapter of the, the great intellectuals and their failure of morality and their failure of intellect in the end. And it, it's... It just got me thinking about how people's biases so affect their rationality. Now, the postmodern person understands and appreciates that completely. That's what the postmoderns are saying. We Christians need to say it. <laughs> you see, the Bible teaches it. You know, the Psalm 14, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It goes on, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The period of the Enlightenment wanted to separate intellectual inquiry from moral behaviour or spiritual behaviour. But the Bible doesn't do such a thing. The Bible rightly sees the folly, the foolishness of atheism is directly connected to, it stems from and leads to corruption. And immorality. That's, that's why people are rejecting God, because they don't want God. It's not just an intellectual idea. They don't like the idea of God. They don't want to be answerable to God. They've got very good motivation to reject God. And having rejected God, that gives them the freedom to live the life they want to, thinks Mr. Nietzsche. And so in a sense, the postmoderns, with their rejection of God, their rejection of the whole idea of truth, their cynicism about that. They don't appreciate that that very cynicism about truth and about God and the possibility of God is itself a motivated 
and biased assumption. They don't want there to be God and they don't want there to be truth. That's right. That is, the gullible cynicism is both a problem of the modernist and the postmodernist. Postmodernists are terribly gullible about themselves. They, they so often think that they're saying something really new when you can find it in ancient Greek philosophy. The Epicureans are really no different. <laughs> they haven't moved on from, from a man who was living before Jesus. It's a very old, but they're not concerned about the gullibility of their own position. So they write books telling us that words don't actually mean anything. I mean, it's a, such a self-defeating kind of position to be in. But self-defeating doesn't worry them because it's all about my journey and my experiences, and you can't take from me my testimony to my journey and my experiences. That's why so many of the articles, even though you see them in the newspaper articles, you start off with a personal description of what you used to be and how you've now grown in your understanding and enlightenment through the experiences of life because that cannot be denied because it's mine, it's me. What right have you got to tell me that I am anything other than what I think I am? But it's interesting, isn't it, that you would expect in a postmodern world, in that kind of world, there'd be enormous freedom for everybody to pursue their own truth in their own journey, since everyone's journey is unique and particular and there's no overarching truth. And we've realised that at last. The search for truth is, is a waste of time. There's just us and our, all our own individual experiences and knowledges. And so you'd think that that would lead to tremendous tolerance uh, and an awareness of a multiplicity of views. Yes, but it's not, is Strangely, it? it doesn't happen. <laughs> no, no, because one of the ways of thinking that has become very common amongst, amongst our postmodern friends is to see the importance of, uh, of systemic thinking. That is, I as an individual have now been freed from systemic thinking that the society has imposed upon me. And so there is no truth, but there is this oppression that comes from systemic thinking, of which, in a sense, modernism has created it, this structure of rights and wrongs and, and governments and laws and, and justices. It, it's all come as a package which really came from imperial uh, exploitation of co colonies. It's all part of this passage. And so what I do is I find my freedom from the system. But the system needs to be brought down so that we can have freedoms. And once you start bringing the system down, then cancel culture and the tribalism of which we've spoken previously. It means that, ironically, rather than there being a whole multiplicity of truths that we can all explore in peace and harmony, we cluster together in power groups uh, to, in order to overthrow the system and gain power for ourselves and our group, our oppressed or victimised group or whoever it might be, or the particular group when we cluster together and form power in numbers. And yes. so rather than there being a multiplicity of people searching and interacting, there become fixed viewpoints that you have to hold, even if you're not entirely sure why you should hold them. Yes. There, be, there comes to be a number of correct opinions. Yes. Uh, and in they order to be part of the group, you have to be part of that opinion, and if you express the wrong opinion, you're persecuted. That is, it, that is the gullibility of their cynicism.
they're, they're cynical about what every other organization of the past or group or idea, they're cynical about it, but they're totally gullible in the way that they're setting up their own sets of tribes and views and orthodoxies. Their own dogmas that can't be questioned. Yes, that can't be questioned, mustn't be questioned, and mustn't even use the wrong words in describing these things. So should Christians, when it comes to thinking about scholarship and even theological scholarship, should we be gullible? Obviously not. Should we be cynical? I don't know. I'm not sure I want to be a cynic. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I do want to be a cynic, but I'm not sure I should be a cynic. What should we be? Cynical? Gullible? Both? Neither? Both and neither. You see, do university tests prove anything? The, the advertisers used to use that phrase a lot. And, of course, people laughed at it because you could see it's not true. The universities are great establishments who, in the Enlightenment and modernist world, have set up research programs and inquiries that have advanced human technology and human knowledge in a most extraordinary fashion. And it's been a wonderful thing to be the recipients of the last two or three hundred years of academic research, especially in areas like medicine and, uh, and the like. But engineering you know it's just phenomenal what has been worked out but university tests do not prove because empiricism is always by definition open to further information further understanding change of mind it's it's very important that it is the universities try and meet this with peer reviews and of course peer review is being undermined because People's reputation lies in their scholarship. When someone saying something new is put out, then, of course, the articles have to go to the peers to review it to see whether it comes up to standard. In an area like theology or biblical scholarship, this, of course, is very fraught, given that the person that you're sending the, the article to has to have a particular knowledge in the area because they've already published their view in the area. For them to accept a new view, a contradictory view, a view that's going to undermine their years of scholarship is highly unlikely. Uh, there can be honest people who will say, now that I've read this article, I realise my last 30 years of scholarship was wrong. But they are very rare and unusual creatures and see, here's where the postmoderns are right. The peer review system has been undermined by human foibles, by human power, by human... So it's very hard to get real change from the orthodoxy of liberal theology in terms of the academic work of theology or biblical scholarship. You can't really undermine it because it controls. It's like that group. Who was that group who wrote a series of false articles? Um, I don't remember all the scholars. One of them had a distinctive name. Her name was Helen Pluckrose, and I yes. remember she was one of them. They wrote yeah. a series of articles of fake or phony journal articles that they submitted to various um, literary and scholarly uh, journals. And they were accepted. And it was only, if I remember correctly, Washington Post blew the whistle on the fact that it was a fraud and it was a hoax. Otherwise, they would have had more of them accepted. 
They're in trouble for having done it, but it just shows the peer review system in certain fields, theirs was in feminism and transgender studies and the like, has just been corrupted. Yes, and the interesting thing that their hoax demonstrated was not just that peer review will knock out your article if it contradicts my scholarship. There's not any of that kind of motivation. It really showed the motivation of groupthink and of consensus. Yes. The reason that many of these ridiculous articles were accepted, there was one I remember on the rape culture of dog parks. Mm -hmm. um, and there was another one um, which basically took Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler and just reworked it lightly into a feminist tract, and it was accepted as well. And the reason they were accepted was, what the, was that they fitted into the existing orthodoxy perfectly and reinforced the current view, and so were considered acceptable. Yes, we'll publish this because this says what we all know is true. Yes, <laughs> which is, is the problem in academic theology a liberal scholarship about the Bible. There is a group think. J.A.T. Robinson was a man who was a bishop of uh, Southwark. He wrote a famous book called Honest to God, which was very liberal theologically, but he was also a very careful historian and New Testament scholar. He produced a book called Redating of the New Testament, in which he, looking at the, at the, the documents of the New Testament, dated all of them many, many years earlier than kind of the groupthink of orthodox academic world. Because of who he was, because he was a Cambridge scholar at the time and because he was the famous liberal bishop prior to that, because of who he was, his book is nearly always footnoted. But I'm always abused. It's never actually interacted with. The arguments are not put up forward or against. To show that you're a true academic, you've got to acknowledge that it exists. But you do not let the arguments modify your view. Because if J.A.T. Robinson is right about the dating of the New Testament, most of New Testament scholarship will need to be rewritten. And... I don't know if he's right or not, because I find very few people who are willing to enter into the debate on the subject. It's as if he hasn't spoken. Which is kind of a, a polite form of cancel culture. <laughs> we'll, just, <laughs> yes. we'll, just, we'll acknowledge you exist, but we'll basically uh, ignore your existence in terms of our arguments and what you said. It's fascinating how that consensus kind of works and reinforces itself and leads to blind spots. Um, when I was doing my own academic work here at college, um, I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer at various points. And one of my tasks was to read his well-known book, Life Together, and to find in Life Together all that it said about the one another speech of the Christian community, which was my topic, right? Now, that theme is all through Life Together. In fact, I'd make the argument it's almost the central theme and most important theme of Life Together that the Christian community speaks to one another, rebukes and admonishes and encourages one another, brings the word to each other, that it's a central core form of Christian service to one another. It's right through the book. But if you look at academic study of life together, I couldn't find a single academic work, even though it's been written on countless times, that even recognise that as a theme or an important subject within the book. Because it didn't fit into the way people thought about Bonhoeffer, the usual themes they associate with him, and in fact their usual conception about the Christian living in community, because it wasn't part of their assumptions in coming to the work, they didn't see it in the work, 
And then they all just reinforced each other and wrote about the same things. Yes. And I found it quite astonishing that, yep. that you could summarise a book that clearly had this as a central theme and, and leave it out of your summary time and time again. Yes. And that's a good concrete illustration of a particular. But that particular is part of the general that is not willing to be faced up to. That is, a secularist university is bound to teach unbelief by assumption. If it is a secularist university, then it has already assumed that there is no supernatural. So when you have a theology faculty or a religious studies faculty in a secularist university, you aren't teaching religion or theology. You're teaching anti-religion, anti-theology, because you've already had that as your basic fundamental assumption. When silly churches ordain people because they've got degrees in theology from these secularist universities, it's little wonder that the clergy are not preaching the gospel in those kinds of denominations. But leaving aside that kind of inadequacy of denominational affiliations, you see there is a fundamental problem in the scholarship of academic theology. Because if it has to be done in a secularist university, it can never find the answers. Because the answers have been removed by assumption. The assumption being that there cannot be a revelation of the true and living God. That's right. That there cannot be an historical resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and history and space. That's right. So how should, as Christians, and I just talked about doing a PhD, so I'm clearly not opposed to academic scholarship, and you've got a couple of degrees yourself, or one of them at least. I keep theology. them very quiet. That's now. right. <laughs> what should a Christian approach to academic scholarship involve? How can we not be anti-intellectual? How can we develop a use of the Christian mind that's that has an integrity to it, but which doesn't fall into some of the kind of problems we've talked about. Well, we mustn't be gullible about others' scholarship. We mustn't just assume because they're university people that they must know what they're talking about. We mustn't be gullible about the basic assumptions upon which their particular scholarship has been built. It's important to read. You see, I'm dead set against censorship. We've talked about censorship, and I'm quite against that. These people must be allowed to publish their books, must be able to, to produce their videos and the like, and give their lectures, because we've got to test our ideas against whatever criticism of our ideas are there. It's very important that evangelical scholars understand fully the critique that is being made of evangelical scholarship and evangelical belief, the critique that is made by unbelievers. We need to know what the false prophets of our day are saying in order to be able to clarify the truth that the gospel teaches. Uh, we, we mustn't ourselves become gullible in the sense of believing our own tribe without questioning what our tribe is teaching. These outsiders... These university scholars who are trained in a group think that is hostile to Christianity, these are very good debating partners and they're important for us to study, read and understand. But it is equally important that we're not gullible like the 
the media are, for the media will quote Professor somebody without ever questioning the kind of assumptions upon which the professor's got his academic credentials. See, we mustn't be like that, just gullibly accepting, well, the great scholar. See, Mr Tillich was a great theologian of the 20th century. But after his death, when his life was exposed, he was an immoral, decadent man who used his position for sexual immorality, using his students. Indeed, on modern, on modern terms, he might actually be dismissed from his post for the things that he would do. However, his theology will be quoted as, you need to read it, you need to understand it's wrong, but you need to be gullible. You mustn't think, oh, this is a Christian man, this is a professor, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. You need to have those postmodern glasses on and say, this is a man who's rationalising his sin. That's an important thing to do. Without going the other end of saying, of course, you can't know anything. That he, that everything he says can only ever be wrong completely. All good lies are covered with a lot of truth. So as we prepare Bible studies, as we read commentaries and theological works, that's the most common interaction that Christians have with academic scholarships, the commentaries they read, the theological and Christian books that they read. We should read them critically. We should read them carefully. We should read them, seeing what sort of things people have noticed about the text that we mightn't have noticed, but not necessarily following the argument to its conclusion and not gullibly thinking that their assumptions and conclusions are necessarily to be trusted. Yes, the, the truth is found in the scriptures, not in the scholarship about the scriptures. But it's important to see whom we're reading. It's important for the everyday Christian to see that they're reading a book written by somebody whose basic theology is a belief in the scriptures. Or if it's not, to read with a different sense of critical awareness about them. And for those who are in full-time paid professional Bible teachers, they need to be trained properly in liberal theology so that they will truly understand and see where the errors are, and be able to find the value of the liberal scholar who asks them hard questions and will arouse their interest into what the text of Scripture is actually saying rather than just what their, their own group, their own evangelical grouping or denominational flavour want the Bible to be saying. The, the liberal scholarship has an advantage to the conservative scholar. But my experience is that conservative scholars know a lot more about liberal scholarship than every any liberal scholar ever knows about evangelical scholarship. Philip, I think that's a good point at which to finish our conversation on the nature of trust and scholarship and the Christian mind. Uh, if you've got any questions or thoughts about today's conversation, if it's roused some ideas in you and you'd like to get in touch, please do that. If you're listening to this podcast by just clicking on the email link when it comes to you, you can just hit reply to the email and that email will come through to us. Or if you haven't got access to that at the moment, you can just email me at tonyjpain at me.com and we're really 
glad to receive your messages and we reply to them. Thank you for the many of you who've responded in recent weeks to our podcasts and I'm doing my best to catch up with all the correspondence, but please do keep getting in touch. We really love to hear from you, which means that all that really remains for us is to close in prayer as we normally do in these podcasts. Philip, would you close in prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the minds that you've given to us. We thank you for the language that you have given to us. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for our friends who give themselves to scholarship, who give themselves to reading and thinking and writing. We thank you, Father, for those who write in challenging ways to our beliefs as well as those who write expressing our beliefs. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for your wisdom that your spirit would give us such understanding of the truth of the gospel that we may be able to weigh and evaluate the truth that we find in your word. And we do pray for your help in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.